Revelation 4, 1 to 3, 6 to 11, and Revelation 5, 2 to 6, 11 to 14. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. um, Oh, sorry. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And then the one who sat there had an appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were three were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, with which are the seven spirits um, of God sent out into all the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and tens of of ten, sorry, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircle the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them say, to him who, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of God. It's really wonderful to be here. Thank you for uh, having me. Um, our city seemed to have a uh, wonderful connection, and my connection with Pastor Bijan has um, been deepening, and I'm so grateful you lent him to us a few weeks ago. He taught 
at our church in San Francisco and absolutely just did an amazing job. And you're very, very, very um, blessed, lucky uh, to have him here uh, as a pastor. So you guys have a wonderful pastor and a wonderful team here. So today, I would like to talk a bit about the subject of worship. And so I want to start with an apology. I apologize in advance because most of my illustrations, all of my illustrations but one are American. I do have a C.S. Lewis quote, so you're welcome. But other than that, they're American. So uh, I apologize for that. But let me pray. I'm American, by the way, so that's why they're American. Um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into this. Lord, as we sat under that scripture, um, you are holy, God. And as we approach uh, today and to look at this, this scripture and to um, embody the scripture and to allow it to permeate our mind and our heart, we ask, God, that um, our response to you would be like everyone around that throne, that we would give you glory and honor and praise from deep within us, Lord. So would you um, rise up out of us uh, a heart for worship? And would you bless this church and give this church a place of worship um, in this city, in this community, but out of their, out of their lives and their hearts, Lord? Um, so I pray, God, that you would uh, anoint me and use me now. In Jesus' name, amen. When I think about the most uh, profound moments in my life um, with God, moments that I knew God was near me and I knew God was directing my life and um, moments where I felt confident that he was leading me and I had a future and I had a hope and that my life mattered, these moments didn't come when I was reading some great devotional book, though those are very, very important. They didn't come when I was listening to a sermon, though I believe in the power of a sermon to do that. And they didn't come when I was on some missions trip or uh, an act of service that was informed by my faith in Christ, though that is something to give your life to. When I think back to the moments most profound to me in my life with God, they have come during times of worship. And I and I'm not talking about like Romans 12, kind of all your life is worship. I'm talking about singing loud, off-key, passionately waiting on God in worship. And the thing is, I don't have like a musical bone in my body at all. I can't sing. I can't play instruments. I can't clap on beat, by the way. So if I'm, our church isn't super clappy. Like there's not a clappy church, probably because if I, if I was to lead that, it would be really bad. I honestly can't clap on beat. That's a true story. I remember the first time, when I, my first senior pastor, when I was younger and I was um, being trained in ministry, my first senior pastor believed that the teaching pastor needed to be the person who leads worship. So he'd made me go up front, like right here, and lead worship. And it was traumatizing. And... <laughs> I actually so tra traumatizing that when we do um, worship and I'm supposed to come up after, I always time it so I'm not up there too long because I start getting a little triggered. Um, so I'm like, when is the song done? And the worship leader usually has to give me nod now. And I'm like, okay, now I go up. But moments of, of worship have shaped me. I was called to San Francisco to plant Reality San Francisco in a moment of worship on my knees in the back of the church on cold concrete floor singing. And during that time when I was singing and worshiping, I remember saying to God, God, I just want you. Wherever you lead me, I want you. I want you. I want you. And I was, I was, I was worshiping. I was praying. And that moment, at that moment of worship, God said to me, go to San Francisco and plant a church. And I remember saying back to God, not there. There's got to be some other place. There's no way in the world. I can, I'm from like this kind of 
rural place in central California. There's no way that I am going to go to the big city like San Francisco and start a church. And I remember in this moment, I'm like, there's no way I can do it. There's no way I can do it. But when you're in worship, when you're before what feels like the unmediated presence of God, you realize anything is possible. I realize at this moment, like, I can't, but God can. And I will say yes, and I will be obedient. And so we said yes. My wife and I said yes. Like when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, that I know you guys have gone through very recently, when Isaiah is before the presence of God, he says, woe is me, here I am, send me. Like, here I am, send me to do your will into the world. And this is exactly how I felt, like, before God. Like, here I am, God. I mean, I'm nothing. I am nothing, but send me to do your will. And so, as we were preparing to start Reality San Francisco, we started with prayer meetings. And Pastor Tim from uh, Reality Ventura was here last week teaching on prayer. And one of the things that we prayed for over and over again for almost two years before we started our church. We prayed what would be true about our church and true, especially in times when we gather for worship, would be this, that a moment in God's presence would answer and can answer a lifetime of questions. A moment in God's presence. We believe this can and does happen, that a moment in God's presence can answer a lifetime of questions. What I found pastoring in places like San Francisco and London, is that a city like this, full of people with a lifetime of questions, deep questions that don't have easy answers, sometimes they don't have any answers, this side of the new heavens, the new earth, and sometimes we're not really looking for answers. Whether the question is about purpose or about ultimate reality or about reason, all of these things, as we pray, our hope is this, when people get into the presence of God, their questions, their deep longings are answered by an encounter with God. When they encounter God in worship, something happens, something clicks, something is awakened, like a new perspective is given, a new perspective, a new way opens up before us, a new hope, a new knowledge of our finitude and our weakness before God and how good God is. We call this worship. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to explain why worship is so powerful, why worship is so important in the life of a church. And I'd like to look at the parts of Revelation 4 and 5 that we had read a second ago. Now, as we're reading Revelation 4 and 5, I don't know if you noticed these crazy living creatures around the throne of God. There were these living creatures where there's eyeballs everywhere, there's eyes everywhere. One looks like a lion and one looks like an ox and a man and an eagle. Now, these are probably representation of heavenly beings uh, of all creation before the throne of God and their eyes represent that they see, they're actually close enough to see all of God, if that's even possible. And they see so much of God with all of their eyes that they're before God's throne worshiping him. You are worthy. We see you for who you are and we're, we are in awe and we cover ourselves up because you're so holy. And then you have these 24 elders who wear white robes, symbolizing purity and victory and worship and golden crowns, symbolizing their share in God's reign. And these are probably representing all the people of God, all the redeemed people of God. Now, more important than their identity is their activity. What are they doing? What are these, these beings, these people around the throne of God, what are they doing? They never stop praising and worshiping the worthiness of God as the eternal one, the creating, the creating one, the one who creates. And they say before God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
So much so, they, see the, they sing this over and over and over again. So much so in Revelation 5, it says that they finally sung a new song in heaven. And it was a song about the Lamb. Now, what's going on here? In Revelation, we get a peek behind the veil. Revelation is called the revelation or the unveiling. It's, it's, it's God pulling back the layer between heaven and earth to reveal to John ultimate reality. What's really going on? What's the actual heartbeat of the cosmos? And what it, we find is that the, the heartbeat of the cosmos is the unceasing worship of God. At the, the, the worship of God is at the heart of ultimate reality. The unceasing worship of God because he is holy and worthy and because Jesus has redeemed us through his sacrificial love, that is at the center of ultimate reality. That is ultimate reality. Even when humans on earth do not see it or participate in it or value it, God and the unceasing worship of God is at the very center of ultimate reality. This is what Revelation is doing. It's unveiling what is true. What is the, the truest thing about the universe? What is at the center of the universe, the cosmos? Which explains very practically and vividly the importance of gathering regularly for congregational worship. This is why gathering every Sunday in congregational worship, what we call church, is so important. Every week, the church, those who follow Jesus, stop their week or start their week, depending on how you see it, by collectively showing up at the same place in the same time. And together, it's like we log on to a live stream of what's really going on in ultimate reality. It's like we all together in the same room log on to what's going on. We actually, we have to get on the tube, we get on buses, we walk, we sacrifice our time and our day to, to come together and to get together and say, we are now gonna connect to ultimate reality. And we say, holy, holy, holy. No matter what's going on in the world or in our own small worlds, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And this is why church doesn't start at 11 a.m. Every church doesn't start at 11 a.m. Every gathering at this church begins with a call to worship. There's a big difference between church starting at 11 and a call to worship at 11. The call to worship is a congregational call to collectively participate in worship that is already going on. Worship is already happening. You are just showing up to a time and place with your community and you just say, we're gonna participate in what's going on already and what has gone on for eternity and what will go on for eternity. We're gonna pipe into that reality right now for two hours, hour and a half on this day. And we're gonna reset the center of our reality to this. And this corporate time of singing and learning and praying and responding to God shapes us. It forms us. When we show up in a church like this, this is supposed to shape us and form us and inform us about ultimate reality. So church is really about Counterformation, meaning you're being formed in all of these different ways throughout your work week. You are being formed about like civic rituals and civic values and, and friendship and neighborhood values and like family of origin values and you're being shaped by this every single day. And what we do is we stop this for, for every single week. We stop this like formation and we are counterformed to reset our desires and our devotion and our praise to Jesus. We are to reset it. We stop a week. We stop at the very beginning of our week and we say, only God is worthy to receive what others may want, others may demand from my life, which is total devotion. So worship reorients us 
to ultimate reality. This is what worship does. Worship reorients us to what's, what's, what's ultimate at the center, at the core of the cosmos. It reorients us to ultimate reality. This is why if you skip church and think, oh, I will just get the podcast, that is not the same thing. Church isn't about a sermon. It's about the people of God gathered to connect with ultimate reality and respond with our bodies to what the Spirit is saying to the church. It's, uh, it's the church every single week gathering and responding with our voices, with our minds, with our hearts, and with our bodies to what, what God is saying, what the Spirit of God is saying to his church collectively. Worship reorients us to ultimate reality. Now, I want to explain why this well, it was on the screen. Why this is true and how it's true. Why does worship reorient us to ultimate reality and how does worship reorient us to ultimate reality? Those two things. First, why? David Foster Wallace, an American novelist, you might have heard this quote before, I've read David Foster Wallace. He says this. He says, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice uh, the only choice we get is what to worship. Now, other people have said this in many different ways. I think the way that David Foster Wallace says it is actually compelling. He goes on and says, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will feel Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when, the, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. I think the way that David Foster Wallace, who was not a follower of Jesus as that, that we know of, as he writes this, he's saying, as he observes the world, as he's a story writer, I mean, he's a brilliant author. He's like, every myth, every great story has this at the center of what you worship and that thing destroying you. And he, he makes the argument that worshiping God is actually a good thing because that if you worship God, and I would say, the Lord God, that actually doesn't destroy you, actually brings you life. This is what we see around the throne of God. Now he says, he says there's a trick though, and the trick is this, to keep this reality, this truth up front in your daily consciousness. Now I, don't, I wouldn't call it a trick, I would call it more of a practice. We have to practice keeping the reality of ultimate reality, the reality of worshiping God and him alone up front in our daily consciousness. What DFW is saying is that what you worship forms you. It shapes you. It orients you. He is basically saying that you are what you worship or you become like what you worship. Another American writer and social commentator David Brooks once said in a lecture that our culture in the West, and this would include this, this country, we, had made, we have made a bad philosophical bet when it comes to our culture, which has set up our culture to be particularly a hard place to find meaning and purpose. And he said this was our bad philosophical bet, that we chose Descartes when we should have chosen Augustine. 
And he goes, that's kind of pseudo-intellectual, but what he means by that, he says, we choose to think of ourselves as cognitive thinking creatures when we are primarily longing, loving creatures. Creatures that are shaped by desire. This is Augustine theology. We are creatures that are shaped by our wants and our longings and our desires. And what this has done is it's positioned us to believe that if we can just think the right things or know the right things, then all will be well with the world. And this is a lie. We think that if we have the right amount of information or if we have more information, then we can get ourselves out of trouble and into a place of peace and like civic utopia. Like the more information, the better we can, we, we can think about something, the more moral we can be, the more loving we can be. And it's not working. It's not working right now. We thought we'd be saved by the information age. We thought the more tech we have, the better off we would be. But what we found out is, though we do have better technology, we have way less meaning. It's not working, and it's not working because we are more shaped by our loves and our longings and our desires and what we worship. This is what we're really shaped by. Now, an example of this would be, we know that buying responsible and ethical things not made by slaves is a good thing, right? We know that. We're like, if you buy something that's not made by a slave, that's good, and it's very important. We know this because we've watched documentaries on Netflix about this. We have read articles about this. We've been told about this. It's kind of like culturally right to, to think, especially millennials, this is like their thing, right? But we, what we really want is that really cool t-shirt that we can buy for $25 or quid or whatever you say here, you know? That's what we really want. Like, I can get that really cool new shirt for $25. Yeah, but it, it probably should cost a lot more than that. But the labor was so cheap and enslaving that you get to get it for that cheap. We're like, but I really want it. We really want the new iPhone, even though it's kind of made a little sketchy. We're like, oh, I've read a couple of things. It's kind of sketchy. But I really want it. Our minds don't make that decision. Our desires make this decision. Our desire to want a thing and want it for a good price overrides how it was made. I remember reading a book by the philosopher James K.A. Smith, and he tells a story in his book, You Are What You Love, about how he was um, reading Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is an American novelist who talks about living from the land and on the land. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a follower of Jesus. And he's reading Wendell Berry about how you, we have to live like from our land and know where it comes from and have relationship with the animals that we eat and all this stuff. And he's just, this symbiotic relationship we have with the land. He's reading it. He's like, yes, yes, yes. And he stops and thinks, about what he's doing when he's reading this book, and he realizes he's actually at Costco eating a pizza. At Co Does he have Costco here? No? You do? Okay, good. He's, he's eating like a $1.50 slice of pizza at Costco, and he's like, my mind is saying this is right, but my desire is I really want to eat this pizza. And this is the disconnect that we have. We know that eating farm to table is better for our bodies and the environment, but our body craves things like that. It craves fast food. I don't know if that's, I haven't really seen that much fast food, but it's America, it's everywhere. Like fast food is everywhere. And it's because we're longing creatures. Okay, so th this is graphically and horrifically summed up by, there is a, um, a, a rapper who is now in prison. His name is R. Kelly. I don't know if you've ever heard of R. Kelly. 
I grew up in the 90s, 1990s in America. And there was this really, really, uh, this hit song that was actually prophetic because this is why he got in trouble. He has a song that says, my mind keeps telling me no, but my body, my body is telling me yes. Have you ever heard this song? By the way, this song is why he's in prison, by the way, okay? But this is true. This is like Augustine theology at its worst, right? My mind says, no, 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 no. But my body is saying, yes, 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 yes. We are longing creatures. We are creatures shaped by our wants, our desires. This is true about us. And not that our desires are too much or that we desire too much. That's actually not the problem. C.S. Lewis says, it's not that our desires are too strong, but they're actually too weak. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our desires, the things that we really want, it's not that they're strong, it's actually they're weak. We fool around with things that, that... that turn us into, as DFW says, we turn us into kind of monsters. Where God offers us, if our desires are reshaped and our worship is truly for him, we are reshaped into people who move from glory to glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of the most uh, famous of catechisms and the most famous um, probably quotes, it's, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But our modern catechesis goes something more like this. What is the chief end of man to acquire stuff with the illusion that I can enjoy it forever? We want stuff, whether that stuff is experiences, whether that stuff is food, whether that stuff is drink, whether that stuff is stuff, whether that stuff is people. We think that we want stuff. You might not say that, but you believe that. I do. I believe this many times. I have to consistently be checking my own heart and motives because I am, we are immersed in civic rituals which will form our desires and shape our purposes. When I first moved to San Francisco, not when I first moved to San Francisco, 10 years after I moved to San Francisco, my wife and I uh, moved into a new place. We bought a home in San Francisco. And we were trying to like, you know, design it. It's our first time we can actually paint the walls in our place because we'd rented a a flat before that and we couldn't do anything. So we were like, we're trying to do it and design it. And so I finally got a a Pinterest account. Have you ever heard of that company, Pinterest? And I I had way, I had not done Pinterest for a long time because I knew it was going to be way too addicting. And it was, and I was so addicted. I'm like, I had my wall or whatever you call it, my board, my whatever. And I was just pinning things everywhere. I'm like, I want it to look like this. And I, I saw a friend who worked kind of high up at Pinterest at church after church one Sunday, and he came up to me. I'm like, listen, I, ha- I have a confession. And he's like, kind of got afraid. He's like, well, what are you going to tell him? Tell me. And I, I was like, my confession is I'm on Pinterest. There it is. I, I got it off my chest. He's like, oh, I thought you would have been on a long time ago. Like, I thought it's your thing. Like, you like aesthetics, and so I thought you'd be on Pinterest. Like, no, no, that's the, exactly why I'm not on it, because I know it's just like, it's like a it's like the Pantheon. If you've ever been to the Pantheon, it's like all these little idols they have in this room. It's like Pinterest is that. It's like my personal Pantheon where I just put all the things I want, all my little idols all over the place. I knew what it would do to me. And I'm addicted to this thing. I want like everything I have on my board. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like, my desires are like lusting after all the stuff that I want. And then he looked at me and said, well, then it's working. It's working. Like our business is working. This is our business plan. I'm like, you need to repent. Like your whole business, I can't believe how you can work for but this is, this is like the heartbeat of Silicon Valley, right? This is like to tap into your desires. 
to tap into it. It's like a race to the, the bottom of your brainstem. This is literally what they try to do. And this, this is it. This is, and what I, I, I laughed, and he laughed, but in, I was crying inside because I know this was true. And what we need to do is we do this every day. It could be Pinterest. It could be anything else. This is, this is codified in everything that we do, right? This is, the, this is what the FW is saying. What we do every Sunday morning, we reorient ourselves. We come into the house of God and say, that, that's not real. My Pinterest board is not real. My job is not real. My, this, this ambition is not real. That thing is not real. What's real? What's ultimate reality is God. He's at the center of ultimate reality, and I will orient my life towards that. See, discipleship to Jesus is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. Hungering and thirsting. This is what drives us. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings to his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, hunger and thirst for God, to crave a world that he is all in all, king of of kings, Lord of lords, the kingdom of God. This is, what, this is what Jesus comes to teach. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but he's trying to shape our loves. This is why worship is foundational, because what informs and shapes our loves are not always new ideas and information. What changes us is worship, the shaping of our longings and our desires to God and his purposes for the world. Eugene Peterson, a very uh, famous, um, and who ended really, really well, his life really well. Eugene Peterson was a pastor in, in America who wrote the Message Bible, translated the Message Bible for his parish. And he wrote in a, a book called Reverse to Thunder, worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy and at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, and every siren. If there is no center, then there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into vast restlessness, epidemic in the world with no steady direction, and so no sustained purpose. What Peterson is saying is that worship literally centers you. It places at the center of the life of a follower of Jesus, the throne of God, ultimate reality. What's happening at the center of reality is happening in the center of our lives. Like I said, worship reorients us to ultimate reality. Now, how? How does it do this? This is where I wanna talk about singing and why singing is a part of what it means to worship. They were singing in Revelation. They're singing, holy, holy, they're singing. Why is, why is singing a part of our, our tradition? Why is singing a part of what we do, how we worship? One of my <clears throat> favorite American rappers is a, a guy named Chance the Rapper, and he was once interviewed by Stephen Colbert, who's like a late night host in America, and was talking about how Chance the Rapper still goes to church. I like, grew up in church, still goes to church, um, was brought to, to faith through his grandma. And, and he, uh, Stephen Colbert, was, who's, a, who's a very committed Catholic, um, said to Chance, why do, you, why do you still go to church? He said, I, I go to there to sing. And then Chance says, singing is praying twice. Now, he can't get credit for that. I think that's Augustine first. Augustine says, the one who sings prays twice. <clears throat> 
I've given Chance all the credit for that until recently someone said, actually, Augustine said that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds very, very Augustine. Um, the one who sings prays twice. Or singing is, what, it, what he means by this is that words have their own meaning. They just have their own meaning. But the expression of your heart comes through the sound of music in ways that the words themselves cannot capture. So you can say something and you could sing something. You could say something and the words have their own meaning, but when you sing it, it reaches, the words reach where words can't reach. Which is why when, I, when anyone who doesn't sing quotes a song on Sunday, it's good, but if a preacher sang it, it's way better. I, I won't do this. I won't sing it. So if I said, then sings my soul, my Savior, God, to thee, how great thou art, I can say that or I can sing it and I won't sing it. But if I did sing it, it would just take this, I, it's actually my dream to learn how to do this, but I, I can't do it yet. But it would just take this to a different level. You would feel it. When you sing it, it's something entirely different. The words get into the heart and express the heart. They literally talk. They, they, they reveal the heart to God. But what if you don't feel like it? What if you come to church and you don't feel like worshiping? What if you're like, I just don't, I'm not feeling it today. The night of Jesus' betrayal, uh, the most intense night of his ministry, he gives the disciples communion, if you remember. He tells them that someone will betray him. It's really, really intense. And then it says this, Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I've often thought about that night, the emotion of the night, the, the, the fact that Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to a trial. He knew he was going to die on a cross. He knew all these things and how everyone was confused that night. Jesus says that one's going to betray me and it's this person who dips his hand in the bowl with me. And, all, and the disciples were confused. And no one was, I would imagine that night, no one felt like singing. But they left singing a hymn. And sometimes you worship when you don't feel like it, but you still have to. Where you have to reorient. I think Jesus led that hymn. I want to reorient us to ultimate reality here. In the middle of this, of what's going to happen and what's going on. When I was preparing for this sermon, I was researching African-American spirituals. Or they're historically called, in, in my country, Negro spirituals. And the origins, basically this is the origins of all gospel music. I was watching a documentary on it by Dr. James Norris, a professor of music at Howard University, a historic black college right outside of D.C. And he's also the director of the choir there. And he was interviewed on songs that came out of struggle and the horrific pains of slavery. And he said this. He said, quote, I, I look at them. I, he looks at people who wrote, who wrote um, the old spiritual slaves that wrote the old spirituals. I look at them and I marvel. I marvel on how we got through it all. Like, through one of America's darkest parts of its history, slavery. I marvel on how we got through it all, all of this. How we got through it all by what? He says, singing. And I remember when I was watching this, I was like shocked. I, was, I did not expect him to say that. We got through all of this. We got through the horror of slavery. How did we get through that? He said, singing. And I was like, the, the power of song has the power of faith, and reorienting yourself to a level that words can't even do to ultimate reality. Songs have a way of telling our hearts and our minds that there is a greater and more true reality than what we see and we are experiencing right now, which is why one of the most popular old spirituals was Wade in the Water. If you ever heard the song, Wade in the Water, Wade in the Water, Children Wade in the Water, God's gonna trouble the water. This is the song, Wade in the Water, Wade in the Water. Children, wade in the water. God's going to trouble the water. What this is, it's like the water, the, 
The like the, the muck that they were in, the stuff they were in, the troubles they were in. They're in it. And they were just they were singing, wait in it. Why? Because ultimate reality says God's gonna trouble this. God's gonna bring justice here. God's gonna do something to 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 usurp what's going on, this injustice, he's gonna flip it, and he will. And we have to remind ourselves of this. We have to realign our hearts to ultimate reality. God's gonna trouble the waters, let's sing. This is what they did. Not only is singing an important part of reorientation that worship brings, but our physical posture is important as well. The, 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 the term worship uh, in, in Greek is proskuneo, which is used 24 times, and it indicates the centrality of worship, but it's also this like physical posture of like, Homage offered by a king or by someone kneeling or kissing, which is an act of the body. There's this TED talk by Amy Cuddy who talks about how your body language could shape who you are and talks about the power pose. And she said, whenever, before you go into an interview or, or a review or something at work, stand in front of the mirror for like 30 seconds and take a power pose. Now, I only know power, my, my daughter's into like um, Spidey and Friends right now, like Spider-Man. So she, she does this like power pose now and it's really cute. And so it's like standing in front of the mirror and like doing a power pose. And what this does, it like realigns your brain to what's true in your body. Like your body's strong and, and it, it like literally physically does something to your brain that rewires your confidence. This is, she also said this also works with holding smiles. When you hold a smile, the social science behind it is that body language is language. It affects, the, the effects of body language uh, affects our brain. And I think the same can be true of our physical posture in worship. When we lift our hands, well, even when we don't feel like it, we lift our hands. When we kneel, this is why we, the carpets are rubbed. When we kneel before God, when we take a physical posture of worship, it does something to our minds and our brains. When we sing and we kneel, Worship like this is partnering with our own bodies to speak prophetically over the identity of our souls. This is true about me, I will kneel. Now, this might feel like a little fake it till you make it, right? It's like, are you saying fake it till you make it? That like, feels like inauthentic. And I don't think it's fake it till you make it. I think it's more of like practice until you become it. Reorient your life to this until this becomes um, true about you. And this is ultimate reality, Revelation 5, 11 through 14. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne, they, and the living creatures and the elders, and a loud voice they were singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. At the center of ultimate reality is a Lamb that was slain, at the true center of all that is, is God giving himself in sacrificial love for us, which orients us to ultimate reality, which moves us to worship. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that being longing and desiring creatures, creatures built with desire and longing inside of us, I pray that our longing 
things that we want to see happen in our world, in our city, and in our own lives would come from a place of worship, of deep, abiding worship to you, God. Move us as we, as we respond to you, the living God, with all that is in us. In Jesus' name.